What comes to mind when I say the word power? Ability. Okay. Strength. Strength. All right. I wasn't planning on this being like a verbal response, but I like it. You kick so Superheroes. Okay, superheroes. Yeah. We got what? Black Panther and the Red Skull. There you go, Tim. All right. Up here in the front. <laughs> I was like, I know it has something to do with. Okay. All right. Um, it, you know, it's funny. The Bible, uh, especially in the New Testament, is just one word. Um, and of course, it does mean strength and might and things like that in the Old Testament a lot. But m- mostly, the word power is more associated with authority. And it was interesting, and I cut it off because I didn't want anybody to kind of get ahead of me. No one said authority, right? Like when we think of power, we do think of might and strength and, and you know, power, the ability to do stuff. Um, I think a lot of times we don't think of authority. I don't know if it's because we're Americans and we don't like authority. Like every individual should have power and authority, right? But in the Bible, it talks a lot about power and usually it's authority. And I think that kind of leads to control. And so if I just jumped out and said, what do you think about control? It'd be like... (gasps) But thinking about how power informs authority and and what authority really is. And I think it's very, very close to control. What's in control? Who has control over you? There's self-authority, self-control. I mean, we all likely work and we at least live in a system where we are not the ultimate one in control. Like even locally at our jobs, but you know, over the whole country, over the whole world, like there are very clear reminders that none of us are really in control of everything around us. And I want you to think about what do you do when you don't feel like you're in control? Like not being in control of something or just not having total authority over something. What do you go to? How do you react? What's your approach? I know that every single one of us do something very, very different. I mean, there might be a handful of us that do this, a handful of us do this. Sometimes the way we act when we're out of control is maybe to act like we don't care. That's a way of kind of getting back control. Maybe it's to, to ask a lot of questions and to figure everything out now and make sure everything is locked out. Maybe that's a way of trying to grab some more control and authority. Uh, maybe it's to get mad and to use our power to press down and to, to yell and to do all the. Maybe that's how we try to take back control and authority. Or it's a sneakier version of that where it's just being kind of manipulative and passive-aggressive and asking really leading questions. And some of those questions like Morgan talks about in Sunday school where they're, they're indicative statements. They may just be a statement, but they're, they really have this heavy imperative, this kind of command underneath them like, hey, you know, it's, you've been preaching for 30 minutes kind of a thing. We all do this. I think we're, we're all made to want to feel like we have some kind of control. And it leaves us in a very scary place. Every single one of us. And I know 
probably people like me are out there saying, I don't, I don't need control. That's a way of trying to get control. Acting like you don't need it, like you're too strong for it to matter. So let's read the passage, and I just want you to think of that theme as we walk through what is going on uh, with Nehemiah in this scene that we're going to look at. And it's chapter 2, we're going to go to verse 10, so from 1 to 10. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord this morning. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I, this is Nehemiah, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and for the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the rivers and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. All right. I love narrative. I hope you guys like hear this kind of, you know, like I said a while ago, like if you read Egypt, you should always do like the bum, bum, bum. Same thing with like Ammonite and almost all the ites in the Old Testament, like the Moabite. You should think like, oh, all right. But anyway, that's just me geeking out up here. Um, All right. Verse one. So what's going on in this story? It says in the month of Nisan. Now, you'll just have to take my word for it that that's four months later. We don't need to go into like what the Hebrew calendar was, but that was four months. Four months ago in Chislev, he heard, right, the month of Chislev, he heard that the walls were burned down. The city gates were burned with fire. Jerusalem was in ruins, and it broke him. He wept. Four months later is when this occurs. He was walking around depressed. I mean, just picture that. Like, think of the humanity of Nehemiah. Put it into our own context. Like, it... It's not the movie where he hears and then the next night he's at this festival with the king serving him wine and it's like, well, why are you sad? No, four months pass. 
That means he was going to work every day just putting on a brave face and smiling. He was just acting like all the stuff that was going on in his life and in his heart was just not not happening because he needed to appear to be like he needed to appear like everything was okay. Don't we do that? Do y'all ever do that where you feel like, hey, how are you doing? I'm good. When like if you had five minutes right there or maybe you're afraid that if you're like, you know, the floodgates would open and you would just turn into a mess in front of somebody. I mean, I think every day, Nehemiah going to work. So he was the cupbearer. We remember that from the very previous verse in uh, chapter 11. And that at least meant that he was the guy who was just in charge of giving the king wine. At worst, it meant he was the guy who was in charge of tasting the wine to be poisoned first so that the king was never poisoned. I don't know if this was a good job or bad job. I can't really tell in here. Like, obviously, he was around the king. The king enjoyed him. It was a, a role of some type of prominence. But basically, like, you're like a crash test dummy for poison. Uh, but so... Even in our own lives, like we don't carry this threat that if I appear sad in front of a king, in front of who has authority over my life, that might mean that I die. That, that's what was going on. Because if you're a servant of a king and you're sad, you're making a statement that one of his subjects can be sad and depressed in his kingdom. And that makes a statement about the kingdom as a whole. And guess who's in charge of the kingdom? It's the king. And so if you appear sad, you're saying, I'm not happy in your kingdom. Of course there were tons of unhappy people. Of course. But Nehemiah knew that to show that was making a statement about the king directly to his face. And often it would be, hey, you look sad. Are you sick? You're not. Okay, see ya. And not like you're fired, it's you're dead. Going to work every day with this weighty depression almost on him. I don't know if it was some clinical thing or not, but obviously he was carrying the weight of this news. And I wonder if he got home every night and just sat in front of you know Netflix for a while. Just whatever the version of that was back in... In the day. But I I mean, that's where Nehemiah was. And so, uh, verse 2, he says, I had not been sad in the king's presence. And he said, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but the sadness of the heart. So the king notices. And we get all these clues about Artaxerxes. Like, he notices that Nehemiah is sad. There's some level of empathy or care for Nehemiah. Um, At the end of the story, he sends him with an entire cavalry. Like, obviously, he cares about the well-being of this servant. He lets him go, so he's obviously not this awful tyrant to those closest to him. It's likely that this was a festival of some time. So he's at least taking time out to check on this employee or servant of his... And so Artaxerxes is at least like just a decent guy. We see that all up, but he notices. And then Nehemiah's just very true statement at the end of verse 2. Then I was very much afraid. 
And he should have been very afraid. For all the ways I just described, he should have been afraid to appear sad in the king's presence. That's not true of us and our king. The Bible encourages us to bring our grief, to bring our whole selves. There's examples of it. Examples of it written in the Old Testament. Examples of it in Jesus showing emotion, showing sadness, having your heart broken before the king. And our king knows that, that is not a statement. It's not a challenge of his authority. It's not a challenge of who he is. He doesn't need our welfare to define himself. And so he says, bring your whole self to me. We have a king who does not tell us to hide ourselves. We don't have to approach God with a fear of being scared or disappointed or doubting or angry or depressed. Not like the king that Nehemiah was before. But in that moment, Nehemiah has a choice. And wherever we come to scary situations, we all have choices. We can either let the situation, the fear... All the things that could go wrong define what we choose or we could act courageously in that moment. And so I've heard a ton. I like this definition. The courage is not the lack of fear, but it's acting in the face of fear. So it's not ignoring that there was a fear, but it's acting knowing that there is a fear. And so that, this is the first half of my main point, is that we, like Nehemiah, can live courageously. You're going to have to track to, to catch the second half. But we can live courageously. That's what Nehemiah does. He made the choice to, in the face of a lot of fear, he could have hit it. He could have said, oh, you know, I, I was really sad because my brother came a few months ago and he, he gave me a bad report. But I'm okay. How many times do we do that? Just minimize it. Well, yeah, should, should I really, really be honest? Like, should I be courageous? Should I live courageously? Should I really expose what I'm struggling with? Should I really be honest and tell the, the deep things of my heart right here? Or should I just give just a little bit enough to, to send that person on their way? And that? Because what if... I'm afraid if I share this. I'm afraid if I expose myself. I'm afraid if I do these things, then something bad will happen. But so we see a real picture of what courage looks like. Like it's not brazen machoism, right? That's what we think. We think, oh, courage, like a superhero running. And surely, surely that is courage, right? But for us, it's much, much more realistic. Look at what Nehemiah does. He says, let the king live forever. That was just a phrase. You said, like, my majesty. Let the king live forever. Then in verse 3, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So he doesn't say, you know what? I serve the living God, Artaxerxes. Send me with horses and resources. I need wood, so a letter from your fort... Like, he doesn't just dive in and act outside. Nehemiah reads the room. He knows who he is. He knows where he is. He knows he's been in this kingdom with a king who at least has some level of goodness that's brought to Nehemiah. And, and don't miss 
how coy and how smart and diplomatic Nehemiah is. Right? He doesn't do the, you come at me with sword and spear, but I come from the living God. Right? Nehemiah acts very intentionally. Let the king live forever. And then he says, why should I not be sad when the place of my father's graves is in ruin? The gates have been destroyed. He doesn't say, I, I feel the need to build up Jerusalem, the one kingdom that will stand forever. That would have tossed the whole thing out. Nehemiah intentionally says, this is the place where my heritage is. He's giving just enough because he knows the situation he's in. He's being smart about it. So courage doesn't always have to look like you just come in on a white stallion and, and knock everybody over. He's being nuanced. And so maybe courage in your life is not rushing in. Maybe it's just admitting that you're having trouble. Maybe it's admitting that you might not have enough or you can't get this done. Maybe it's asking a hard question of someone who's close to you. Maybe it's getting a doctor's appointment. <laughs> There's so many noises going on right now. Courage probably looks very, very different for each one of us. But that really is the decision we have to make sometimes. Nehemiah tiptoes into this. And, and courage is not brazen foolishness. It, it's just acting in the face of fear. But so again, the king notices. Verse 4, the king said, what are you requesting? So I love this. Nehemiah is trying to kind of give just a little bit, just enough to keep Artaxerxes interested, but not shut down the cut. So, he, so he's kind of opening himself up. And then Artaxerxes is just like, what are you asking for? I kind of like uh, Artaxerxes in this chapter. He, he cares. He's very, you can tell that he just has this confidence or savvy. He, he asks direct questions. Nehemiah's like, you know, what, what, what he tells this story. Artaxerxes is just like, hey, what, what are you, I can tell you're trying to ask a question. Stop being nuanced. Be direct. What are you asking me? What, what are you really asking for? And then Nehemiah goes, so I pray to the God of heaven. So th this is a conversation that's going on. And, and so last week we heard this long prayer that's really well thought out and formulated and theological. And it had confession and adoration. But this one was like, oh God, help me. Uh, I mean, that, what, how much time did he have? It's not like uh, maybe he had... Let me get you some more wine. And he's like, oh, Lord, please, I, I don't, I really need your help here. But it wasn't this long, elaborate, beautiful prayer that he, oh, Lord, if you should grant me peace with the king and mercy and all, he, like, he just, oh, help me, Jesus. He knew what he was about to ask the king. He needed God in that moment. Just help me. Maybe that's what your prayers look like at times. And that's fine. I think we can get way overdone with like, well, was it deep? Did you pause and, and just, you know, call a time out with your boss when, when there was this huge question that you were about to ask? Like you can do this, the shotgun prayer, just fire one up hoping, right? 
I think if you only do one of the two, you, you can lean into the other one. But again, Nehemiah knows his only hope in this situation. He knows the amount of control he has. And it's interesting that God has been rather silent in this account so far, right? Like we haven't seen God, it wasn't God came to Nehemiah and said, build the wall. Only like two people got that. God, God didn't come and give Nehemiah this prophetic decree. Nehemiah's not a prophet, right? He's like a ruler. He becomes the governor of an area. God is relatively silent, but not to Nehemiah. Nehemiah knows where his hope lies. He knows who has the authority. He knows who has the power. He knows who is in control. And he will need God right here. Verse 5. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, notice he's not saying, Well, you need. He's still being respectful and honorable. Treating the king like a king in whose authority he's under. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah. Notice, not Jerusalem. To Judah. To the city of my father's graves. Again, that language. That I may rebuild it. So he asks a ton. A ton. Think about, like, put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes. You are the cupbearer, like the dog who makes sure that the food or wine or whatever isn't poison. Nearly meaningless. You're just a body to use. Now he's asking the king, the most powerful king of the entire area, that he could leave and go rebuild this city. That's huge. It'd be like us rolling up to the White House just asking for millions of dollars to go do some project that was personally important to us. That's huge. And he knows that he has such little control. But do you ever get the sense that he thinks he can manipulate some stuff? Like, do you ever get the sense that he's not trusting God and what God says and what God's doing to come through? I wonder if someone followed me around for a week, maybe a day, but a week for sure, who they would come to understand who I believe to be in control of my life. Who is in control of your life? Well, Jesus. Yeah, I know, I know that's what we would all say, all right? Just, if somebody followed you around, what would they say? Who would they say is in control? The way that you act, the way that you set things up, the way that you cultivate your life, deep down, who do you think has authority over everything that's going on? Nehemiah knew it was God. In verse 6, we see this whole thing shift. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, that's, it was likely this big festival, right? 
Artaxerxes says, how long will you be gone? He's got it. Right? Like, I used to be in sales, and I don't know if some of you are in sales, but like, so you're talking to people, and before you get like the actual contract and stuff like that, you can just hear little things that people will say, right? You'll just notice little statements, and you'll be like, I got them. And I remember just hearing those statements where I'd be like, Yeah, you know, that, I don't, yeah, I mean, that does make total sense. I'm not sure why I wouldn't do it. Got them. Like, it was just that excitement, and that's what Nehemiah had. He didn't need the letters yet, but the king going, and and probably this is more like us coming to our parents asking if we can have something. It's like, well, okay, well, how much does one of these, how long will you be gone? He's got it. He's got it. It's awesome. I mean, the turnaround. Cupbearer to the king, and look at verse 9. Coming to the governors beyond the river with the king's letters of all the resources. Oh, and here's an army with horsemen added on top. The turnaround? I mean, Nehemiah hit like the near ancient eastern lottery. The turnaround. I'm, I'm the poison boy to I have a cavalry of soldiers to escort me to build a house and a city for myself and my people. Like, we, we shouldn't skip over that. It is incredible. And so the second half of, of all of this, and we'll swing back around to this verse. Now, let me just read it for us. So he asks, he knows he has them, so he asks even more. He says, okay, if, if it pleases the king, he's still being respectful. I, I need letters. I need, he, he gets all the details worked out. So he's not just running on dreams. He thinks it through. He says, as soon as I gave the king a time, as soon as I gave him an accurate plan, the king was pleased It pleased him to do it. He says, okay, well, I need letters. I need wood. I need to go to the king's forest and get wood. I need to get all these things. I need letters to pass safely throughout the territories. I'm going to need some type of associative authority from you. And he asks for a ton. And he says, and and this is at the end of verse 8. He says, and the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. And so the full point this morning is we can live courageously, the second half, because the hand of God is on our future. We can live courageously because the hand of God is on our future. Nehemiah knew that the whole time. He didn't jump in. It wasn't brazen and foolish, but he knew who was in control and where God was in the picture even though God has not come to him and specifically spoke. He didn't get this great revelation from God. God put something on his heart. And he said, you know what? I am burdened over this. I know that God is in control. And so I'm going to to shoot for the moon. And it worked. And it worked. At least to get there. Because he knew that the hand of God was upon him. But, and this goes the same in our lives. Oh my gosh, God is blessing me with this thing, but it's just right around the corner is more trouble. Right? Like, 
if things are going well, we should enjoy it. We should celebrate it. But we know that right around the corner, there's something else coming down the line. And that is true for Nehemiah too. The good hand of his God was upon him. And then even just two verses later, really one verse later, because he needed an army to escort him. Verse 10, it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, these are two other governors of provinces, when they heard that he was coming around to do this stuff, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Right after, he's blessed. So he wins the lottery. In turning the corner on his way, trouble is already rising up. I think often we think like if God's behind us, if God's blessing what we're doing, everything's going to be easy and carefree and peaceful and restful. And I'll just know because of how wonderful it is that never happens to any of us. I mean, Jesus was God and he was killed. And then he had to leave his friends even after he was resurrected. Right? Like the best we get is being persecuted for the name of Jesus. But but I know, I do this all the time. I know many of us think like, I'm trying to follow the will of God. I'm trying to live out what God really wants me to do. But, you know, it's hard. So I must be in the wrong space or I must be on the wrong path. Like what, what about this entire book says, if you follow God, things will be easy and carefree. I mean, Nehemiah, time and time again, and not to spoil the story, but like things don't work out. If you just summed up the book, it's like swing and a miss, kind of. Just like all the other, I mean, Judges is an entire book of like, you guys are doing great. Oh, gosh. Okay, we did it again. Oh, look, God raised up and we're, we're doing well. Oh, no, we did it again. Over and over and over and over. I think it's kind of discouraging, especially with everything outside of this building, metaphorically, is telling us everything should feel great all the time. If you're an Instagram influencer, your life should be wonderful. Every, every, every job you take should just feel like every day you're walking in fulfilling the greatest joy of your heart. And the person you're closest to is the one. And it should feel like that all the time. Or, or something must be wrong. So you know, things are wrong. Things are wrong. I don't even think, I think everyone deep down really believes that things are not okay. And that's true. It is true of us at best. I mean, Nehemiah knows that his fate is not in his hands at all. I mean, he has the best situation right here and it's, it's neutrally in the hands of this king ruling over everything. And then he's at the whim of these other governors who will eventually start to attack 
and actively destroy what he's building. Then he has to deal with the people he's trying to to work with. I mean, Nehemiah has such little control and things are going wonderful for him. That's not good news. We have such little authority, such little control of what we do. I mean, at best, you have a good job with a good boss, with a spouse. I won't even say good, but just who will apologize. (laughs) Y'all all all laugh because it's like, yeah, that's actually the best we could hope for. (laughs) And that's the best I can even be, probably. (laughs) And then you get cancer. Like, do any of y'all wrestle with most of what we do sometimes just feels futile because some of life's hardest things are things that are totally out of our control, that we didn't ask for, we didn't do anything to earn it. It just showed up. We just lost a person. And there was nothing we did to create that. And God didn't go, okay, you haven't been paying attention in church much. Zap. That's not how God works. We should feel the weight and the burden and the disappointment of life. But it's those same hands that Nehemiah knew that came and said, bring, bring the little children to me. Bring the people who have no access. Bring them in. It's the same hand of God that as Jesus was looking at what he came to do, the hand of God being on him to bring him to the cross, the same hands that were pinned to a cross to hold up his frail, beaten body that would soon be a corpse, the same hand of God that was resurrected that he told his disciples to say, hey, come, feel. Feel where the nails were driven into my hand. Feel it. That's whose hand we have over everything. That's the hand of God that ultimately we can trust to be under, that we can trust to have authority and control over everything in our lives. It doesn't mean that things will be easy, but it does mean that someone who loves us enough to die for us is guiding where we go, is guiding what will happen. And maybe it doesn't get better at all until heaven, but we get a better picture than Nehemiah had of the good God that was with him. And so we can courageously live through life knowing that that good hand is on our lives. For those of us who believe and trust in God, ultimately, it means that we can experience all the trouble that Jesus said this life would have. But we know that a much bigger hand is over our lives. That's what gives us courage because the hand of God is on our future. Let me pray for us.
Lord, I ask that you would just help us trust. That you would help us trust you and your hands. That you long to gather us up and bring us to know you more. And that we would let go of our own authority and control and give it to you, knowing that you've made us to live that way and to be free that way. So God, I pray that you would help all of us identify what we're afraid of and courageously act, knowing that a good God is over us and that your loving hand, which is strong enough for anything, will keep us, will hold us, and Lord, will eventually usher us into heaven where we will see you face to face. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.